A couple years ago, I was attending BitBlock Boom, and for anybody who's not well acquainted, that is the longest-running, consecutively-run Bitcoin-only conference. And if you're interested, it takes place in August, at the end of August in Austin for the first time this year. The last few years, it's been in Dallas. But I was at uh, my second BitBlock Boom, and I was on a journey learning about Bitcoin and trying to figure out for myself where it fit in with how I had been raised and some of the values that I try to hold on to based on my upbringing and what I think is important in life. And I was thinking, okay, how does this fit in with faith? Just personally, just thinking that to myself. And I was also kind of wondering, how can I help one of the um, organizations that my church supports, which is an orphanage in Zambia, and a couple other things, thoughts like that. And after a presentation, there was a brief uh, few moments from Jimmy Song. And when he stood up, he happened to mention as part of his presentation that he was a Christian. I was like, well, I got to talk to him. So a little bit later, after he finished, I went out in the hallway and listened to him spend time listening to somebody that had questions for him and just kind of eavesdropping on that conversation. And then when I had the opportunity, I asked him a few questions and he spent time listening to me in addition to giving feedback, of course. And uh, at that particular moment, he, was, uh, he had books available because he is a prolific author and co-author. And he had the little bit Bitcoin book. So I got that and took it home. Not long after that, he wrote a book called Thank God for Bitcoin. So I had to get that too. And I was sharing it with friends and I got several copies and then I uh, reached out to Jimmy to help me out with a friend of mine who's a national radio broadcaster and he was kind enough and their schedules matched up that he was able to go on that show and he did a very good job of articulating for people who were brand new or, or not even close to Bitcoin. Uh, and then as his thank you to me, he sends me another copy of this, which was wonderful so I could just keep sharing that information. And then recently, this past December, he got together with some more friends and wrote another book. Bitcoin and the American Dream, helping uh, our politicians and policymakers really understand what is Bitcoin and how does it all fit together. So after BitDevs this past week, I think I'm going to have to go get this one. <laughs> We'll see. I don't know about my aptitude. But anyway, Jimmy Song is here. And one of the, the things about him that I love so much is his character. He is just so easygoing and pleasant. I think you'll find that, too, as he comes up here to speak about the intersection of faith and investing in Bitcoin. Jimmy Song. Thank you, Teresa. That's um, way too kind of an introduction. I, I do want to say, though, before I continue, I, I, do, I am noticing a lot of actual cowboy hats. Usually when I speak, I'm the only one wearing a cowboy hat. So it's good to see other people wearing cowboy hats. I will say, though, I'm all hat, no cattle. I literally have no cattle. I know most of you that are wearing cowboy hats actually have cattle. So, um, you know, I would love to eat your beef and stuff. So um, I did order like half a cow from Cole and uh, oh my goodness, that is just fantastic meat, right? Like I'm, I'm, I actually ate like two pounds of ground beef raw the other day 
and it was delicious. You don't even need to cook it. It's, it's that good. All right, so anyway, my, my, my talk here today is about money. It's about the current fiat monetary system and what Bitcoin is actually fixing. Um, and I want to sort of look at it from a moral perspective because I, I, I don't think most people realize just how immoral the current system is. Okay, this isn't working. What's going on? All right, there we go. All right, so here's some money facts. We, we tend to think of, uh, about money and think we know how it works because we spend it, we save it, we do stuff with it and think, okay, that means we actually know what money is. But actually the system behind the money, most people actually don't know very well. Um, for example, US, the US dollar is not backed by gold. A lot of people think that it still is. It's been over 50 years since it was backed by gold, and in 1971, that ended. So, you know, that, that's a fact that a lot of people don't know. Um, money in circulation, it's mostly debt, right? It's, it's, it's debt issued by somebody, and people don't know that either. And finally, money is continuously created, and it's, uh, the supply of money is constantly being expanded, and that's also something that not a, people, not a lot of people realize. So I want to go back through a little bit of the history of the U.S. dollar, um, and this is starting in 1944, Bretton Woods. So it's towards the end of World War II, um, and because Europe was at war, Asia was at war, a lot of the balance of payments in international trade at that time was done in gold. So a lot of gold came into the United States because the U.S. produced uh, essentially all the war materials for all those places and all the other stuff that they needed. So most of the gold was in the United States, so the U.S. had enormous leverage towards the end of World War II to essentially tell everybody, hey, we're going to go with this system. And it was a little hotel in New Hampshire called Bretton Woods where a bunch of monetary bureaucrats from around the world came and said, we're going to establish a new monetary world order, and they did. And the idea was, instead of settling in gold, we're going to settle in dollars, and the U.S. is going to keep the gold for us. And we'll, we'll use dollars because that's going to be more convenient than shipping all this gold around. At least that was the justification. And that's what they did, and the U.S. at that point was the reserve currency of the world. In, in a way, the U.S. won World War II, and this was the privilege that the U.S. decided to impose on the rest of the world. 1971, uh, Richard Nixon, in the middle of, uh, you, know, you know, the Vietnam War, had a lot of social programs to pay uh, with the great, great society programs that were continuing from the 60s. A lot of countries were threatening to convert their dollars for gold and have it actually repatriated to their country. So in 1971, he ended co convertibility to gold temporarily. That temporarily has been over 50 years now. But basically, no more gold-backed dollar. It, at that point, it was all fiat currency. And a couple of years later uh, came along the petrodollar system, and this was the way in which the dollar continued its uh, reserve status. So all oil, specifically 
you know, with the help of the Saudis, is traded in the dollar. So that's the reserve currency of the world still, because if you want to buy oil, you have to use the dollar to buy it on any international market. And any time anyone suggests that you use something other than the dollar, you know, that's very quickly, you know, fudded down and, you know, maybe even countries being invaded or something like that. Um, you know, Saddam Hussein and uh, Muammar Gaddafi both wanted to sell uh, oil for euros or gold, respectively, and their countries got quickly invaded. So there's something kind of fishy going on here. But basically, we're on the petrodollar system and have been since 1973. Um, why is this? Uh, all right, there we go. So as, uh, the, the main point is that the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. All, all international, most international trade settles in the dollar, though obviously if you're Russia, you can't do that, and you're trying to settle in the ruble or the yuan or something like that. But this gives the dollar enormous power over everybody else. The fact that it is the reserve currency of the world means that there's always demand for the dollar. And here's how the money actually works. Uh, new money is created through debt. New money is created through debt. Um, so for example, uh, you know, the federal government has a budget of like $6 trillion or something like that. Um, the tax revenue is only $4 trillion. Where does the other $2 trillion come from? Well, it's it, uh, the treasury issues treasuries, right? These are bonds, government bonds. and that's, that's how they fund it. But who buys the treasuries? Who's giving the money? Well, there are some public organizations that will buy it, but the vast majority of it is bought by the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States. So it is created into existence. The deficit in any yearly budget for the federal government, it's just made, right? It's just created. So every year, whenever you see, okay, well, there's like a $2 trillion deficit, that's $2 trillion more dollars that come into the economy as a result of you know, politicians wanting to spend too much money. But it's not just the federal government, though. Um, we also have commercial paper. So these are corporations that want more funding so they can expand their business or whatever. These are all commercial loans. They're commercial bonds. Uh, and those are also created out of nothing. So when a, when a bank loans out money for a business to expand or whatever, they do not take from their savings and lend it out. It's created out of thin air. And it's not just commercial paper either. It's retail loans. Stuff like your mortgage or your credit card. All of that is also created out of thin air for your benefit. So I want to look at mortgages because this is probably a touch point for most of you to at least like con contextualize what all of this means. So um, usually it's something like $500,000 at 5% over 30 years, right? Like that's, that's what a mortgage looks like. If you think about it, would you ever take the other side of the trade? Would you, would you ever take $500,000, lend it to someone for 30 years at 5%? Right, who, who would do that in this room? Like, nobody would ever do that. That's, but, huh? 
Yeah, yeah. I, unless you would never take the other side of the trade because it's way too long, way too much money, and you know the the interest rate isn't high enough. You know you can easily make seven, eight percent in the stock market. Why why would you take five percent over thirty years? And you have to wait thirty years. And you know with the current mortgage laws and things like that, uh, the borrower can pay it off at any time. So, you know, it's not even for 30 years. You might get it back at some point. And in addition to that, there, uh, if you think about it, the bank actually doesn't do that, but they're, they're handing out these loans all day long. So what's actually going on? Well, they're creating the money out of thin air. And in fact, there's very little risk to the bank because of Fannie and Freddie. The way it works is that Fannie and Freddie insure these mortgages so that if they default, they'll, they'll, they'll make up for it. So what, if you have something called a conforming loan, essentially, every time you take out a mortgage, if you default, you know, Fannie and Freddie will make them whole, right? So this is money that's just kind of coming out of nothing. The banks have zero opportunity costs. It's not coming from somebody's savings. It is coming out of thin air. They, literally create the money for your benefits when you take out a mortgage. That's how money works. Most people think, oh, okay, some, you know, there's a bank and you, know, you deposit some money, uh, you know, $1,000 and they lend out the $1,000 at a higher interest rate and they make a difference on that. That's not how it works at all. That's, that's what we're taught in school, but that's not how it works. The amount that you deposit, they have the right to lend like 10 or 20 times that. And in fact, there's no reserve ratio whatsoever anymore, so that means that they can lend out as much as they want, which means that they get to create money. This is why banks are so profitable, right? And they have 47 vice presidents at your local branch. It, it, it's because they, they, they make tremendous amounts of money from the money that they print. This is how money works. Now, like you might say like, uh, you know, like the banks get the interest payment, so it's clearly good for the bank, right? Because they're making 5% interest on the money that they're lending. Um, and the borrower gets leverage. You, most people put like 20% down, so you're getting 5X leverage to buy a home that you wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. Um, the real question is, does anyone get hurt? Well, let's, let's noodle on that a little bit. All right, stimulus checks. This is another government program that was extremely popular, and this was done at the federal level. Um, government got a lot of political points, right? Because you got your stimmy checks. These were $600 or $1,200 or whatever you got. Um, and of course, people got free money. All right, does anyone get hurt? Hmm, I don't know. Let's think. All right. The real thing that we need to think about uh, when, when you're talking about economics are the unseen effects. What's actually going on and can we really get something for nothing? Can we get stimmy checks for free? Can we get mortgages uh, like with this, these enormous amounts and have no consequences on the economy whatsoever? Well, no, because there are unseen effects. Specifically, the money expands. The supply of money expands. Um, and that means that your money is worth less. And you see this as savers get hurt, right? 
the savers get hurt. Whoever has, has been saving in dollars, while their dollars are worth less, they're essentially being stolen from. So just to give you an idea of the expansion rate of money, right? Like how much the supply of money has changed. Here are some statistics. M2 money supply is one measure of all the dollars that exist. 1959, according to the St. Louis Fed, the M2 money supply was $289 billion. That was all the money that existed in 1959, which is kind of crazy because, like, you remember the TARP bailouts in 2008? That was like $800 billion. <laughs> that was almost like three times as much as the money, all the money that existed in 1959. Uh, currently, it is about $22 trillion. $22 trillion in M2, okay? Now, if you annualize that, that ends up being about an annual increase of 7%, okay? So that's the monetary expansion rate. And that's a classical definition of what inflation is. And uh, you'll notice that this is not the same as the CPI. The CPI is the consumer price index. This is the number that governments have been telling us for a long time. And Almost always, throughout the 90s, you know, uh, early aughts and, uh, you know, the tens, I guess, the teens or whatever, it was always like 2 or 3%. But if you look at these numbers, it's, it's way higher. And we're not told these things, and they redefined inflation so that we wouldn't notice. And, you know, uh, the most recent print was like 8.5%. The real rate is more like 20 or 30%. Because the M2 money supply in 2020 was 15 and a half trillion. So in just the last two years, it's expanded by 30 or 40 percent, which is insane, right? Like that, that, that's how much money is expanding. That's how much savers are getting hurt. And the savers are not the rich people. <laughs> this is very important to understand. Rich people are constantly leveraging their money, and they are getting into enormous amounts of debt, in fact. And they, they get interest rates that are very, very low. And, uh, you know, there was a story many years ago about Mark Zuckerberg and how he got a mortgage at, like, 1%. That's because he's Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like, it, and you, you know he's going to pay it back, so it might as well make what, what money you can. But it's never the rich people that are the savers in the dollar. It's also not the poor people in the U.S. Um, they're, they're usually in a lot of debt, but they pay a much higher interest rate. Payday loans are like 35% or higher, right? Credit cards are like 17, 18, 19%. Well, you know, they're, they're getting into a lot of debt. No, the, the people that get hurt, it's the middle class, right? Unless you're like doing a lot of investing and spending your time on like investing in real estate or stock or picking the right stocks and you know spending all your time doing that, they're the people that actually have savings in the bank. They're the people that get hurt. And it's not just them. It's people in other countries. Remember, the dollar is the reserve currency for the world. And there are lots of people all over the world that are holding their savings in the dollar. So here, here's who actually gets hurt, get hurt. It's people in the developing world. It's people in places like Nigeria, Venezuela, and Turkey. You go to any of those places, they want the dollar. 
Those are the people that are getting stolen from. In fact, North Korea, you would think, okay, there's no way this is affecting North Korea. No, it's affecting North Korea. Yeonmi Park, one of my friends, North Korean defector, she's a US citizen now, um, you know, I, I've had her on my podcast. She talks about how in the black markets in North Korea, the most desired currency is the dollar. And then it's the euro, then it's the yuan. But the dollar is what is the chief savings vehicle for the people in the black market there. And one of the things that we found out during the pandemic was that the prices in the black markets in North Korea doubled. They doubled, right? Their savings is being stolen away from them. It is prices going up, savings are worth less. This, this is just straight up theft. And it's all so that we can have our STEMI checks and our PPP loans. Think about that. It's, it's so that we can be comfortable, right? In the first world, in the Western world. And we are hurting people in Nigeria, Venezuela, Turkey. And this is something that very few people really understand or realize. That's why I call fiat money evil. It's a system made so that a few people benefit at the expense of the poorest of the poor. Now, Teresa mentioned that I am a Christian. And here's, uh, th this is a, a, a verse that I've reflected on somewhat. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when I've read this verse, I, I was like, all right, who's actually oppressing the widows and the orphans, right? <laughs> like, who actually goes and, you know, like takes stuff away from them? For the most part, they're treated, you know, like, with pity, like they should be. But then I think about how the monetary system actually works. Who are the widows and the orphans? They're, they're, they're the people in the developing countries. Those are the people that are being stolen from. And our money is what's doing it. That's why our money is broken. Here's where Bitcoin comes in. Until you understand all of these things about fiat money, Bitcoin doesn't make any sense. Until you understand that uh, the current system is horribly unjust, Bitcoin doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The reason why Bitcoin makes sense is because there's a fixed supply. There's nobody that's able to expand it. There's no banks that create new money through loans. There's none of this injustice. And it's decentralized, right? There's nobody in control. It's a political currency. It's 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 fair. There's nobody that gets to you know create new money and you know uh, take resources for themselves. And there's no theft through inflation because that's what inflation is. It's a way for people uh, in power to take resources from those that are not in power.
And that means that we ultimately have this ability to save and build civilization. Because when, when we get into debt, we end up actually breaking down civilization. Civilization collapses as it gets under a load of debt. So I, I want to um, just close with uh, sort of this analogy of all of these things and what, what the commonality between money, food, and God, all, all of these things are. Basically, they all, uh, we, we need to understand the problem first before we can understand any of these things. And uh, they, the problems are all around corruption and debasement. There's also a trusted third party that, that come into play that abuse their power. And then there's some sort of redemption that's available. For money, what I just told you, um, you know, the, the problem is debt, right? It's, uh, the U.S. dollar is all debt, and that debt is used for all sorts of injustice. And it's made that way through bad money, and specifically fiat money. Why won't this go to the next slide? <laughs> all right, there we go. The trusted third party are the central banks, because they're the ones that really expand the money supply. And the redemption is in the good money, Bitcoin. And food has, the, has a very similar kind of dynamic. We have lots of nutritional debt, right? We, we, we don't, we're not feeding ourselves properly, which is how we get bad food. We get lots, and that's, you know, lots of sugar and, you know, food that's not very healthy, that's not very, sourced very proper, uh, sourced very well. And it's really the corporations, big ag and, um, you know, processing plants and even the U.S. government to some degree, that we have to trust Right? They're, they're, they're the ones that create this you know, horrible system where we're not very close to our food. And the redemption is good food, right? Having good protocols. Like I, I love getting uh, you know, my meat from KNC cattle because now I, I know what they're doing and I can eat the food that's most nutritious. And similar thing with God, until you understand your own spiritual debt, none of this makes sense, right? Christ doesn't make sense until you understand your spiritual debt. And that expresses itself in bad habits, in what Christians would call sin. And the thing that we put our trust in instead is our culture. And the redemption is in the ultimate good which for me is Christ himself. The whole of humanity is in all sorts of debt and we need redemption to get to the place where we can thrive. And with money, with food, with God, all, all of these things, we have an opportunity to fix things. And that's what Bitcoin, that's what big, uh, beef, that's what God represents. Thank you.